Good morning. I want to greet you in the name of Jesus, the one who has said, like the title you see in your bulletin, Come Follow Me. Sometimes when we're thinking of following Christ or not, or what we're doing with our life, very often we look to other influential people in our lives, whether it's in society or, or uh, in the church, people that are, that are doing well, that are preaching, that are teaching, that are maybe just all around they're a good influence, and you see them and you think, I want to be like him or I want to be like her. And sometimes we end up trying to model ourselves after an individual like that, and then all of a sudden we see them make a mistake. They make a huge blunder of some sort. And then either your political views change or your church affiliation changes, or sometimes you drop your faith altogether, or sometimes you you want to walk away as a result of something that you've looked up to or someone, and then now all of a sudden that, that idea, that vision of that that perfect thing that you were trying to follow is all of a sudden not as good as you think. But the encouragement that I have for you today is when Jesus said, follow me, he never said, go follow some other person who you think is doing a good job. Don't follow somebody who may seem like they have it all together and then follow them. He said, follow me. Like the verse in your bulletin, Matthew 9, verse 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. There wasn't hesitation. He didn't, he didn't say, okay, let me just gather my things. Let me square things away and clean up my home. Let me put my taxes that I've collected into my savings account or he didn't have any of these arguments that just simply says he arose and followed and then Matthew understanding I'm I'm assuming he had he didn't know what he was in for when he followed but he understood that his life would look different he got up and he followed and then he threw this farewell party at his house he invited all of his friends or a great deal of them, which were also in the same type of business that he was in. Verse 10 says, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this and said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So you can hear that Matthew probably had all of his friends gathered there and and maybe, maybe he wanted his friends to meet this Jesus that caused him to change his life. Or maybe he just simply wanted to just have that farewell party where he would say, I'm not in this line of business anymore. See you later. But then, verse 12, when Jesus heard that these Pharisees were asking that, it says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Sometimes we, in our self-righteous attitude, 
we think, yeah, John really, really needs to hear this message. He really needs to get up and follow, or Abe, or Isaac, or George, or Frank, or whatever you want to, whoever you have in mind when you hear a good message, and you think, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. They heard it. That's kind of what, the, what these Pharisees were doing. They're saying, what's this guy doing, this Jesus, this teacher, this guy that, that, that he's this great speaker, he speaks with power when people are listening, like there's something different here, and he's sitting with these sinners and tax collectors. Sometimes we have that same attitude where, where when, you, when you're in your own mind, so you have set your own standard, and you're walking to, towards something that is not good, and you see the line and you stop and you say, oh, kind of look around and everybody sees that I'm not crossing the line, okay, we're good there. You walk to the other side up to the line and like, make sure everybody sees that you're not actually crossing the line, okay, I'm still within my boundaries, I'm still good. But those guys, those sinners and tax collectors, those are the bad ones. Jesus came for sinners. And John 14, verse 6 says, Nobody comes to the Father but by Him. If you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are amongst the sick, the sinners, the ones that need a physician, the ones that need a Savior. Pointing fingers is a very easy game to do, and we've learned how to do it fairly well. It's easy to see somebody else's shortcomings or mistakes, and yet we kind of neglect our own. What's interesting here when we read that verse in Matthew, this is where Matthew kind of, he has his own account of, or he, he has written his own account of when he encountered Christ for the first time. He says, a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. But in Mark, we read that he was another disciple's description of the same event. He says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So his name was actually changed to Matthew, which means a gift of God. And this took place right after he followed. Matthew doesn't even want to refer to himself as Levi, where, who he used to be. He, when he writes about himself, he says Matthew, his new name. Not, he's not thinking about the old one anymore. He is now a new person. So I'm going to go over a, a little history lesson slash session here on Matthew just to kind of give us a bit of a picture of who he was and what he was about. And a lot of this is taken out of the Warren Wearsby commentary along with some other historical books. So Matthew records his own encounter with the Lord in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 17. It's a beautiful example of grace of the grace of God. His old name was Levi, the son of Alphaeus, according to Mark 2, but Matthew means the gift of God. Apparently he was given this new name to commemorate his conversion and his call to be a disciple. Remember those days the tax collectors were among the worst or among the most hated people in Jewish society. To begin with, they were traitors to their own nation because they sold themselves to the Romans to work for the government. Each tax collector purchased from Rome the right to gather taxes. So some historical uh, facts, they say, or evidence says that they would go and buy this right to exact taxes. So let's say if, if we were here today, we we're supposed to pay like $100,000 in tax, then 
then I would go buy that right from the government and then I would exact those taxes from you and you'd give it back to me, although you wouldn't know what the exact number was. I would just keep collecting taxes, so if I end up with 200,000 or 300, whatever, nobody knows what amount exactly I overcharge, but you know I'm ripping you off and you hate me for it because I'm one of you. That's kind of what Matthew's situation was here. He had the right from the Roman government to do this. He had bought, the, purchased this, this right from Rome. And the more he gathered, the more he could keep. They were considered thieves as well as traitors, and their constant contacts with uh, the Gentiles made them religiously suspect or, if not, unclean. Jesus reflected the popular view of the publicans when he classified them with harlots and other sinners. But it was obvious that he was the friend of publicans and sinners. Matthew opened his heart to Jesus and became a new person. This was not an easy decision for him to make. He was a native of Capernaum, and if you remember the story in Matthew chapter 11, the people of Capernaum were the ones that had rejected Christ. So Matthew was one of, one of the people from Capernaum, and likely also one that would have rejected him, or at least his people group would have. So this made the decision even harder for him, because he was a well-known businessman in the city, and his old friends probably persecuted him. Certainly Matthew lost a great deal of fortune when he left to follow Christ. So everybody knew who he was because he was a tax collector. He was from the people of Capernaum. So now not only did they hate him because he was a tax collector, but now the same people that, always re re that had rejected him, he was from the people that rejected him, and now he went and followed him. So there was all kinds of reasons for people to not be very thrilled with this uh, Matthew character here. He not, Matthew not only opened his heart and his home, but he also opened his hands to work for Christ. Alexander White of Edinburgh once said that Matthew left his job to follow Christ, but he brought his pen with him. And little did he know, this ex-publican, that the, through the help of the Holy Spirit, he would actually write the first account of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. According to tradition and other history books, Matthew ministered in Palestine for several years after the Lord's return to heaven and then made missionary journeys to the Jews who were dispersed among the Gentiles. His work is associated with Persia, Ethiopia, and Syria, and some tradition associate him with Greece as well. The New Testament is actually silent on this. We don't know a whole lot according to Scripture what exactly his life was like, but according to other history books and in Fox's book of martyrs, we read more accounts of, uh, of who he was and what, where he traveled. So Matthew had this, this, this encounter. He's sitting there living for himself, trying to get, get ahead and, and exact taxes and do things that were not good. He was known as a publican, as a sinner. And yet when Jesus came and said, follow me, he just got up and went. How many of us are ready today, even in this moment, to say, I know Jesus is calling. He wants me to live for him. He wants me to be one of his disciples. Having no idea what the outcome it will be like Matthew. He didn't know when he got up and left that he would be one of the 12 apostles. He didn't know that he would write an account of the gospel of Jesus' life and that that would be the first book that we have in the New Testament. He knew none of those things. The only thing he knew for sure was the call was there and he answered immediately. Not everyone who hears the call answers. Some of us like to start or to, yeah, to finish what we've started first. We like to 
So we have an idea of what our life should look like. We have an idea of what our family should look like, what our finances should look like, our homes. And we would like to finish it to a certain degree, and then we will commit. Then we will say, here I am, Lord, use me. Until then, sometimes we have a hard time committing because we still have a job to do. We still have work to do. We still want to get ahead and build something, make something of ourselves. And it's not new to us only here. But in Jesus' day, there was the exact same attitude. The only difference is we have now the full Bible in its entirety, and we can see the, from beginning to end what God's plan is for us. And we can look in history what it means for people that follow Christ, even in difficult times. So we have all the reasons for us to say, I understand even what I'm getting into, even if we don't know the details, for us to, uh, to get up and say, yes, I will follow. And yet we, we often are too busy. We're waiting for a more convenient time. Or sometimes we're thinking we will, like these Pharisees or the people of Jesus' day, if there's a certain amount of fame attached to it. We want to if we can do this job. And then something comes up on your other side and God says, I want you to minister to this person and you pretend you don't see it and you walk away and say, okay, I'm going to go this way because this isn't actually what I had in mind. In Matthew chapter 18... I'm going to be bouncing around in Matthew here quite a bit. Matthew chapter 18, we see some evidence of this as well. Starting Matthew 8, 18 says, Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go, to the, go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sometimes it's a little bit of a, an interesting statement to make when somebody says, hey, I want to follow you. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests and I don't even have a pillow. I think if you look at what the culture was like, what the people were like in, the, in this day, they always tried to attach themselves to whoever was the highest ranking person in society. They wanted to climb that social ladder. They wanted to climb that political ladder. And Jesus was getting a lot of attention. So the scribe says, hey, I'm here, I'll follow you. And Jesus, probably knowing his heart that what he's looking for is fame, he wants to be associated with this guy because a lot of people are noticing him. He says, why do you want to follow me? I don't even have a place to lay my head. I have nothing. Your social status will not increase or your political status will not increase because you're following me. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Some were thinking that this mission that Jesus was on was to gather earthly, earthly status where he would be somebody and he would call his army to fight. Some wanted to make him king so that he would call everybody to fight because he was such a powerful speaker that if he would have said, let's get up and go charge the Romans, they probably would have done it. And yet his mission was very different. His mission was with a vision of eternity. He wanted to save souls for eternity. He had a job to do. And for him to complete that, he needed to stay away from all of this political stuff. All of, I mean, he didn't stay away from all political stuff, but for him to, to step into that line of work, he could have easily done and he could have been very successful. But his mind was on eternity, not on the, on the here and now. Sometimes it's, it's not an easy thing for us to say, when, when you feel the call, when you, when, when you think, okay, well, I, I have this 
this pounding in my chest and I feel like God is saying, I want to use you and, and sometimes we're scared of what that will mean because we have so many earthly ties. Sometimes we say, okay, well, what if, what if that means I need to leave my home or my country or my family or my church? What if, what if it means that I need to then leave my old life or my old friends or my old habits behind and we're still holding on to them because this is what we know and what we've enjoyed? Matthew would have had all the reason to say that because he was, he was doing very well for himself. Even though he was hated, he was doing very well for himself. He could have said, look, I'm, I'm in a good position here. I can live, live out my life comfortably and I'm not going to have any opposition really. So I, I'm, I'm actually quite good. I'll just stay where I am. He could have said that if anybody, had oppor- or if anyone, anybody would have had a, a good reason to, he would have. And yet he said, he didn't say, let me gather my stuff and go. He said, here I am, let's go. He got up and went. In Matthew 10, verse, starting verse 34, one thing that I'm always kind of amazed at when, when we read what it means to follow Christ, sometimes, sometimes we've had this thought, maybe before you're born again, you think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept Jesus because all my problems will then go away. I'm going to do it because, because he's going to kind of give me a clean slate. All the problems will be in the past and nothing, life will just be good. And yet, the law of the harvest applies to each one of us. What we have sown, we will reap. Sometimes we have sown all kinds of nasty seed and then you're born again and then you have to reap the consequences still. Even though you're now a born again child of God, you're still reaping consequences and then on, on, beside that, Matthew 10, starting verse 34, it says, here's Jesus speaking, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, I used to not... Back in the day when I would hear this before I was born again, I thought this is very, a very odd thing to say when, when Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but he came, that there was going to be division against family. And, but as soon as, uh, many of you have maybe experienced this as well in your own family, as soon as you're born again and you stand up for truth, there's immediate opposition. Sometimes it is exactly what he's saying here. Dad is against son, son against dad. And it's not that there's this hostility of that, uh, that there's a hate between them, but there's truth and lies, light and dark, and they're fighting and they're butting heads and it just doesn't work. And you have problems and you don't understand why because I made the commitment I am following and yet there's these problems. Well, we were told many, many, many years ago that this would happen. For us to follow Christ, there will be a cost. It's not going to be smooth sailing every day, although the reward at the end will be worth it. We had issues in my family. I'm the fourth oldest from 14. My parents had 14 children. And myself and my sister and one of my brothers, we started having Bible study many years ago before we ever attended Lighthouse. And we had almost immediate conflict in the family. And this was really hard for us because our family was really close. We're always a a close bunch. We did a lot of stuff together. We played sports together and all kinds of stuff. And there was, an, an, there was immediate conflict in the family. 
to the point where one of my brothers had said, well, then I'm not coming to gatherings anymore if they're going to be there. So, and, and this, was, this is a very painful thing to go through because you love your family. This is your, these are your people. And yet when there's conflict there, it hurts. Then you have to sit, uh, take a step back and count the cost. Am I willing to see this through because this is hard? And my wife and I, we, we, we actually labored over this very much in the beginning. We wanted to take that step. We wanted to, we were born again already, but we wanted to take that step of obedience and follow him. And yet we were terrified because of this reason, because of the conflict in the family. But then verse 37 says, and this is the verse that gave me courage to take that step and go anyways. Verse 37 says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. All of a sudden, it was like I got hit with a two by four. Like, now not only was it, I was, I was trying to keep the peace in the family, I didn't want to cause any problems, but now all of a sudden God says, well, if you're not willing to follow me because you're afraid of, of offending somebody or your family, you're simply not worthy of me. And all of a sudden, like, I said to my wife, we can't do this anymore, we have to. We have to take that step and we did, and it was difficult, and it was hard, but it was incredibly worth it. So I think I can safely say, all myself and all of my 13 other siblings are all born again, and my parents as well. They're not as open with it yet, but I believe that they are as well because of some really good conversations that we have had with them. So you may go through a trial, you may go through, go through something really difficult that's really close and personal to you when you make that commitment. But God has done an amazing work. And I don't know, he could have done it without us being obedient because God can, can move mountains. So he could have done it through others as well. But I believe it was a direct result of obedience to him why we're living in such amazing unity now with a as a family better than it was before even. Whoever, verse 38 says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, we have to recognize that life, even in the case of Matthew, life simply doesn't revolve around us. You're not the most important person in the room when you get somewhere. And sometimes we try to view life that way, that, well, I walked in here, so I'm automatically better than everybody else, so, you know, maybe if they start working on themselves, I'm already in a pretty good spot. And yet it says, if you're not willing to lose your life for his sake, you won't, you won't even find it. But if you're willing to lose your life for his sake, he says you will find it. And that means taking up your cross and following him. And then there's a job to do. Matthew 28, 18, and then to the end, he says, All power has been given to me on heaven and in earth, therefore go. He's not saying, if you find a convenient time, when you've sown all your wild oats, when you've done all these other things that you think are important to you, then go. He says, no, I have already, I have all power on heaven and in earth, Go. Preach the gospel, make disciples. And even in some cases, it's just simply like we have in our bulletin every Sunday, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine amongst men 
that they see your good works and then glorify God who is in heaven. Our job is to, first of all, glorify God who is in heaven and also preach the gospel. Again, in Matthew chapter 16, starting verse 24, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Perfect case, Matthew, the one that we're talking about. He has everything together, so to speak, for, for his own life. And yet his life only really started once he gave it up in his old life and followed Christ. He picked up his cross. He left what was there, picked up his cross and followed him. And that's when his life actually only really began. It says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? When you're standing before God one day, You've passed away from this earth, and now you're standing before God. He's saying here, okay, now you've had all the world's riches. You've done everything that you wanted to do. Yet you never picked up your cross. You never followed him. You never accepted Christ as your Savior. Now you're standing before him. What can you give him in exchange for your soul? What kind of material thing, or what can you take with you to say to God, here's my ticket, let me in. If it isn't, exactly what Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to get to heaven. To be with Him for all eternity, there is one, one way, and if your answer is anything other than that, then you're simply just not going. Going on there, verse 27, He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Whether good or bad, each one of us, we will be repaid for what we did. Now, sometimes when, when we think here on earth, some, your neighbor has a nice big house, you think, man, I would like that house. Why does he get a nice house? I want that house. But when you get to heaven, if you're going to be amongst the saved, just for example, you were born again, but you didn't have any works, you didn't bring anything to him, there's nothing that you did for him, you didn't actually live for him. Yes, you're a saved individual and you're getting into heaven. Maybe you're going to have a little hut and your neighbor's going to have this gigantic mansion because he spent his life in service to the king. You will not be sitting in that hut thinking, I want that house. You're going to know, I got more than I deserved. The guy in the mansion's not going to think, I'm better than you. We will have this clear understanding that when God, the righteous judge, has judged each one according to what they've done, good or bad, what you will be receiving will be exactly what you're doing, and you're going to understand that, that this is even being generous. He will come and repay. We don't have to worry about the next person while we're here on earth. Sometimes we have a hard time letting go of the things that we have here. Sometimes we have a hard time making that decision to take that step for him, to follow him, because... We think we're good, you know, sort of better than the next guy anyways. And, and maybe, I know for, for us as Mennonites, there's this, this, this hope that we're going to be sick on our deathbed for a while, so we're going to have time to, you know, repent and do all these things. And, and 
And one German said, Dort gewünscht der Krankenbad. Like, no. If that's your plan, that you're hoping for one day you're going to be sick and dying in bed and you're going to have time to repent then, there is, first of all, there's no guarantee that that's ever going to happen to you. You don't know if you're going to hit a hydropole on your way home today. If you're not ready to go now, you have no idea if you're going to be going. You, you, we just simply don't know what the future will bring. That's why the call to follow him is so incredibly important. If you have not made that decision, today is the day where you need to do that. Because we simply don't know how long we will be here. Matthew 19, starting verse 16, he says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And this is a little bit, this whole story reminds me a little bit of us as Mennonites a bit. I'll explain to you in a few moments here. And he said, Jesus answers them and he said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, good, I've done all these things. I must be a really good person. And yet, this is where the Mennonite thing comes in. For me anyways, okay. I was, I was doing all the things right, at least in front of people, according to eye service, I should say. I dressed the way I should dress. I spoke plotich, like only people that go to heaven do. And I went to the right church. And in front of people anyway, I didn't do any of these bad things. So I was already good. At least better than most. And yet there's something inside of me that said, what else must I do? There's something in my heart that wasn't full, that wasn't fulfilled, and then, okay, what else? There's something else that I need to do. I'm, I'm doing all these things. I'm already so good. Meanwhile, I had no idea about salvation. I had no idea about assurance of salvation, yet I thought I was good because I was doing a lot of these material things that I thought meant that I was good. I think a lot of you can relate to that way of living. And yet my response, my question to God was, what what else? There's something in me that was saying there's something else. There's something more. And this young man says, all these have I kept. What lack I yet? What else? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. This young man like many of us, when we count the cost, what it means to follow, die to self, pick up your cross, follow him. We look at the cost and we say, oh, not that. I don't want to give up my luxury. I don't want to give up my family. I don't want to give up my home or my land or whatever it is. When he heard these things, a young man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, this, how likely is this one of the publicans that was invited to Matthew's house for dinner? It may have been, 
because it says he was a young rich man and he had a lot of things. We don't know. There's not much detail about it. But how likely is it that he got introduced to Jesus by Matthew at his, his farewell party there? And now he, he, he really wants that. He wants to be good and he wants to follow him and he wants to have this assurance of salvation. But man, the thing that I cherish the most, I got to give up. Those who try to save their life here will lose it. But those that give it up for the sake of Christ will find life and life eternal. John 12, verse 24 through 26 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Matthew is a really good picture of this. He is like that kernel of wheat that died, and it has multiplied so many times over that nobody could count. After some years after Jesus went back to heaven, he penned the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book that we have in the New Testament. Through that writing, how many people have come to faith? In his day already and from then until now, we don't know. Maybe we will never know even when we get to heaven. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's un- uncomprehendable what God does with stuff like that, but that's one kernel that died. Had it not died to self, had Matthew said no to that calling, what would have happened with his life? He likely would have remained alone and died, not buried and not, not producing any kind of fruit. That kernel would have just simply remained a single kernel. But because he was obedient, he did his duty, he followed, not knowing what that would look like in his life, what he would go through at all. Sometimes we want to have this assurance, like, I'll do it, but I need, I need a few guarantees here. Like, I'm not going to have to go there or do this or whatever. We have these, these preconceived ideas of, yes, I will do it under these conditions. Matthew didn't even, he, as far as it's recorded here, he didn't even ask. He just got up and followed. He died to self. He picked up his cross. He followed. And the fruit that has come after that is, is incredible. But verse 26 there says, If anyone serves me, if anybody wants to be a disciple of Christ, wants to serve him, he says, you must follow me. You can't... To be a servant of Christ, you can't accept Christ and say, there, now I'm saved. Now I'm going to go sit in the corner and wait till I die so that I can go to heaven. He says, no, whoever serves me must follow. John 21. Another very... A very... uh, Mennonite response here that Peter gives Jesus. I love this part. It makes me makes me laugh sometimes, but it's pretty serious what he's what he's doing here because this is what our response very often is. John twenty one verse twenty to through twenty two. So this is a story where Jesus has already died. 
And now the, Peter and his buddies are all fishing. And then they see this guy on the shore who's making breakfast. And, and then Peter jumps out and swims, so he reaches there first. And, and then the others come and they have this breakfast together. And Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, well, yeah, of course I do. So he asks him three times and the response is the same. And then, and then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. I have a job for you to do. You need to be at work. And then Jesus tells him, okay, this is the kind of death that you're going to face. Kind of gives him a little bit of a, an idea there. And then picking it up in verse 20, chapter 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved follow, following them. They went for a walk on the beach. And then this is the, the, uh, John, the disciple, the one that also wrote the other gospel. He's following them, the one that Jesus loved. The one that had also leaned against his, leaned back against him during the supper, and said, "Lord, who is it that's going to betray you?" So he, Matthew's describing John. John's the one who did this at the Last Supper. So John is the one that's following there. When Peter saw him, he said, "Lord, what about him?" So Jesus just told him what he was to do, even that he was going to die for serving him. That this is one of the things that he would face. And he's sitting there, "Hey, what about John?" Hey, oh, what about Jake? What are you going to have him do? Oh, but what about, what about that guy? Isn't that, isn't that how we often work? Okay, you're at, let's say you're, at, you're on a job site and your boss says, I want you to go shovel that trench. Me? Why not him? Or, I've worked here longer than that guy. Why? Why? Why me? That's kind of what Peter's response is here. He's thinking like, okay, okay. Okay, I, I, I hear you, but what about him? And Jesus' response, he says to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. He's saying, none of your business whatever I have planned for this individual don't concern yourself with I have given you instruction it does not matter what about him if God is calling you today to follow him to pick up your cross whatever that looks like for your life are you willing to say here am I Lord I will follow or are you looking around and saying okay Maybe I will yet, but who, what about, what about Corny? What about Martin? What, what are they going to do? Absolutely none of your business. God says, follow me, not man. We get sidetracked so many times because we allow our earthly thinking getting, to get involved where, where we'll, we're still exactly the same as the guy that comes and says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, thinking you're going to get position, you're going to get rank or something. Jesus says, they're going to hate you because you're following me. That's what you're going to get. They're going to persecute you. Many of you will die for your faith, he was saying, because you're following me. They first hated me. Of course they're going to hate you. And we're still kind of in that same mindset. We're thinking, okay, if I do it, if I say yes and I follow and I go all in, what am I going to get? What kind of position, what kind of rank... We're still worried about the next person. Okay, what's he going to get? What's she going to get? 
Jesus is saying, that is none of your business. I'm calling you to follow me, and that's it. It's up to each one of us to respond. How are you going to respond? There's a little bit of an overview yet before we close. Matthew was a dishonest tax collector under the Roman Empire system. Matthew would have paid the full taxes, kind of like what I said before. He would have probably paid all the taxes ahead and come and collected them later and then reimbursed himself generously. Tax, correct, tax collectors were notoriously corrupt because they extorted far, far more and far above of what was actually owed to ensure their own personal profit because their decisions were enforced by the Roman soldiers. They would actually have Roman guards standing guard and helping them enforce these tax rules that, uh, that were not fair, that they were cheating people out of their money. But nobody dared object because they're Romans. They would actually make a very quick end of you if you objected to it. On the same day when Jesus invited Matthew to follow him, Matthew threw a great farewell party or a feast in his home in Capernaum inviting his friends so that they could, likely inviting his friends there so they could meet Jesus as well. From that time on, instead of collecting tax money from people, unjustly, he was now collecting souls for Christ. Despite his sinful past, Matthew had a unique, or he was uniquely qualified to be his disciple. He was an accurate record keeper and a keen observer of people. He captured the smallest details. Those traits served him well when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew some 20 years later. <clears throat> on the surface uh, by appearance it would have looked like a very scandalous and even an offensive thing for Jesus to pick a guy like Matthew a tax collector as to be one of his closest followers since they were widely hated by the Jews yet of the four gospel writers Matthew presented Jesus to the Jews as their hoped for Messiah tailoring his account to answer their questions Matthew's gospel is one of the most detailed. He goes back to the Old Testament the most and says, it, it was written and it was written and it was written. And he kind of brings back the Old Testament so that the Jews that were following the Old Testament, they could see that Jesus was the fulfillment. So he does the most from all four gospels. Matthew displayed the most radical change from all the disciples that were, from the first 12 anyways, that followed Jesus. He was this, this, tax collector, this hated person, the one that was living for himself and was doing nothing good with his stuff. At least we can't find any evidence that he was a good person in any way. And as soon as Jesus said, follow me, his life changed radically. And that's one thing that we have to keep in mind here for ourselves as well. We can't say, I've accepted Jesus and then your life never changes. From what I find in scripture, Nobody who has an encounter with Christ, who personally knows him as Lord, has the same life before as what he did after. It doesn't stay the same. There is a radical change. He did not hesitate. He didn't look back. He left behind his wealth, his security, for poverty and uncertainty. He abandoned the pleasures of this world for the promise of eternal life. The remainder of Matthew's life is uncertain, but there's traditions or history that says that he preached for 15 years in Jerusalem following his death, 
following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then he went out on the mission field to other countries. Now there's some, it says there's a disputed legend that says Matthew died as a martyr for the cause of Christ. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. Fox's book of Martyr, Martyrs also supports the martyrdom tradition of Matthew, reporting that he was slain with a halberd in the city of Nabadar. Now, halberd was a type of spear slash axe that they used in the war back then. It had a long spear-like pole on it, and then it had an axe on one end and a hook on the other end, and then a spear pointing out at the tip of it yet. So it says he was slain with, with one of those in Ethiopia for his faithfulness to Christ. Are you ready to answer a call or the, the call from Christ that says, follow me no matter what? It's important that you count the cost. It's very important that you say, what's most important to me is not here in this life, but the life to come. When you recognize that and say, yes, Lord, you may face difficult times and difficult situations. But the end of it is eternal life and even a fruitful life while you're living here. Even as Jesus went up to the tax booth to Matthew and said, follow me, the same he's saying today to each one of us. Follow me. Die to self. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Whatever happens. Matthew would have never dreamed of being known across the world for writing the gospel of Matthew at the time of his call. He would, I don't know that he would have had the full knowledge of Jesus being the Christ even, but he knew that there was something, something was big. He just dropped everything and went. Now we have a decision to make ourselves. Are we accepting the call? Are we getting up and going? Or are we saying, yes, Lord, I'm going to stay sitting here until, until the day you return because I don't like when people aren't happy with me, so I'm just going to keep it to myself and, and live on. Or are we going to take our faith as serious as Matthew did? Get up and go no matter what. My prayer for each one of us is, is that that we count the cost and we say yes anyway. Even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, this world is spiraling. We don't believe it's going to be around even a whole lot longer, so we have a job to do, and it's an urgent call from Christ that says, follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace, and even, Lord, we thank you this morning for your call to us that says, follow me. Help us, Lord, to not look at others, what they're doing or not doing. Help us to look at ourselves and what your call is on our lives and to simply be obedient and go, knowing that you are the rewarder for those who diligently seek you, that you will repay each one for what they have done, whether good or bad. Help us, Lord, to remain focused on storing up treasure in heaven and not allow our earthly riches or desires to sidetrack us from what the goal is. Help us, Lord, to recognize when the enemy is throwing things at us that is a, 
a sideshow, the, the thing meant to distract us from moving on. Help us to remain focused on you. Give us a hunger and a desire and a thirst for your word and for righteousness so that we would be well acquainted with you and that we would understand your will for us. And Father, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit would you give each one strength and power to say, yes, Lord, here I am, use me. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We just thank you and we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.